Well, I invite you, if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in the Old Testament book of Kings, where we've been studying now for a while. And Second Kings, it's broken up into two parts, First and Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you can open there with me. Second Kings 18, part of this chapter, it's a long chapter, will be on the screen in just a moment. So if you don't have a Bible, you can see it there. Second Kings chapter 18. We've just been teaching through the Bible. We teach through these portions of the Old Testament when Israel, God's people, are in the land and they are ruled by various kings. And there's much in God's plan that he wants us to teach us here, even as it points us forward to King Jesus. That's what we have been seeing. So this is where we're at. The last thing we saw in chapter 17 last week was one of the most monumental events in the whole book, namely the exile of the nation of Israel, the removal, the judgment and exile of the nation of Israel. So just remember, certainly if you haven't been with us or if you're new, at this point in history, God's people are in the land of Canaan, as I said, ruled by kings, and for the past 200 years, this nation has been split into two nations. It's now two nations. So here's the map we've used many times just to give you a visual there. It's been split into Israel in the north and the tribe of Judah in the south. So it's really two separate nations. And it was split as a result of God's judgment, his discipline, because of Solomon, one of the great kings, his sin. And God split this kingdom. And so for the past 200 years... We've been tracing here in the book, we haven't been 200 years, it may feel like that, but it's only been a year, but in the biblical history, 200 years, we have been tracing really the history of these two nations and their kings, mainly focused on the northern kingdom. That northern kingdom of Israel that you see there has been unfaithful to the Lord that is idolatrous since its very beginning, setting up false alternative worship. And now, 209 years later, 20 different kings, all of whom were evil, God has used the great kingdom, nation of Assyria, to remove Israel. So, we'll X them out. They are gone. That happened in 722 B.C., as I said, by the nation of Assyria, has conquered them, has deported them, scattered them all throughout the kingdom of Assyria. So they are no more. And then we saw at the end of chapter 17 last week that the nation of Assyria repopulated that land with peoples from other nations. So that land now sits populated by peoples from all different nations, also full of idolatry. It's really tragic. It's really Sad. So this is where we're at in the history. Judah, the southern kingdom, is left. But as we read in chapter 17 last week, implicit in the judgment of Israel, the northern kingdom, is the judgment of Judah. They are trending in the same direction. And their judgment seems inevitable. It's inevitable. They've had... Good kings, several good kings, but all those kings were compromised. 
they compromised the worship. They didn't take down those high places, those alternative places of worship. And then the last king of Judah we saw, Ahaz, was just like the kings in Israel. He was an idolater. He sacrificed his son in the fire as part of his idolatrous worship. He changed the temple. He brought in a pagan altar of worship. So it seems inevitable. So as we open this chapter, there's a big question mark over the nation of Judah. How long will it be before God removes them? It seems inevitable. It seems like that's the next thing we are going to read. But not so fast. The beginning of chapter 18, our chapter this morning, we have a pleasant surprise. Unexpected, if not downright shocking. Where does this come from? Let's read it, chapter 18. It is a breath of fresh air in the midst of this pretty dark book that we've been reading. So here's chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. This is for free. I'll put this on the screen here this morning. So if you want to look there or you can just follow in your Bible, I'll put this part on. But listen to what we're not expecting here. It says, now it came about, this is verse 1, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel. So we're just, we're stepping back in time a little bit to before that northern kingdom was exiled. And we're going down to the south and seeing the next king. And he comes to the throne while Israel is still existing. They're just a few years from exile, so that's what he's dating it by. He says that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, Ahaz was that wicked ruler, king of Judah became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to Yahweh. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which Yahweh had commanded Moses. And Yahweh was with him. <clears throat> Wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Stop there. <laughs> A breath of fresh air. Good news. This is good news. Good news. A David-like king is here. Completely unexpected. Where does he come from? His father was the notorious idolater. But here he is. A David-like king. King Hezekiah is described by our author in David-like terms. Now, again, why is that important? Remember the story of the book. Why is David so important? David reigned 300 years earlier. Why does he keep showing up? Well, one, David is the gold standard by which all the kings are measured, right? He was the model of the king after God's heart who ruled according to God's word. And so all subsequent kings are measured according to David, and not one king yet has lived up to David's model until now. 
But David is also mentioned, not just because he was the model king, but remember, more importantly, because of that promise to David, an incredible promise that through David's descendant, his son, God would establish his kingdom forever. God's final eternal kingdom is coming through the line of David through a Davidic king. And so once again, we see God's promise is not dead. Yes, the northern kingdom is going to be gone. But God's promise to David continues. And here it is again. It's revived again. And here we have a David-like king. How is he like David? Well, just, just note these couple things. No compromise. He removed the high places in every form of idolatry. There's no compromise with Hezekiah. Now, we have seen, as I said, other good kings in Israel or in Judah. Five or six of them that said they did what was right. And then every time after it says they did what was right, then it follows with, however. However, they didn't remove the high places. They compromised when it came to the worship of Yahweh and let these idolatrous high places continue. So we're used to seeing some good kings, but there's always a but, an exception, a a compromise. But notice, we're waiting for that in verse 4 after it says... He did all according to his father David had done. And then we're expecting the however. But it doesn't say. It says he removed the high places. He broke down the sacred place. That's the first time in the book of Kings. After all this history, the first time someone completely reforms their worship. Takes down every high place. Ashtara, sacred pillars, everything he roots out. He even, now notice that little note there. Isn't that interesting? In verse 4, he destroyed, he broke, he smashed the bronze serpent that Moses had made. The bronze serpent. Do you remember that? That was 800 years ago. That was in the wilderness wandering. Do you remember that? When the people were grumbling and the snakes bit them and, and they were dying. And Moses said, what should we do? And God said, I want you to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And if they look, they'll live. A great picture of the gospel. We didn't even know this object still existed. They've kept it around for 800 years. And now they're burning incense to it. They've turned this good object, historic object, into another form of idolatry. Burning incense to a sacred object, an object that God gave them. Isn't that amazing? Just this propensity towards Various forms of idolatry. The church even has struggled with these very kind of things. You know that. Taking objects, icons, and venerating them. I grew up in that kind of tradition where we lit candles before statues and incense. And they became these, we said veneration. You want to use the word worship it's just another form we're just prone to this kind of superstitious kind of worship so he takes that this think now i want you to think of this this 800 year old object that moses made i mean what would that go for on ebay right i mean that's a priceless object historic he smashed it to pieces why does the author tell us this because he's trying to show there's no compromise with hezekiah doesn't matter this was a good God-given object. If it causes the people to stumble, smash it. Who cares what it's worth? It's 
causing the people to trip up. What a, what a commitment to the worship of God and to no idolatry, a thorough reformation. So he's like David that way. There's no compromise. And then we're told he trusted in Yahweh. And like David, Yahweh was with him. So his premier virtue here is verse 5. Do you see it? He trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him afterwards. He trusted in Yahweh, and then we're told Yahweh was with him. I, I highlight that phrase because that phrase is only used of David, that Yahweh was with him wherever he went, and he prospered. And so did Hezekiah. He trusted Yahweh, and then it, that it's seen in verse 6, he clung. Don't you love that word? He clung. It's that word for husband and wife. Cling to his wife. He clung to Yahweh clung to him. We're told of Solomon that he clung to his wives, his foreign wives. Same word. What a contrast. He clung to Yahweh. Now, how is trusting Yahweh always seen? In obedience. He kept the commandments of the covenant. That trust is always evidenced in this life of obedience. And so that's what he did. He's the exact opposite of his father Ahaz. Right, Not only did he tear down all these altars that Ahaz had worshipped at, but he also threw off the reign of Assyria. Do you see that? Verse 7, he rebelled against the king of Assyria. That's a bold move. Remember, Assyria is the superpower. They have been subjugated. They've been paying tribute to Assyria since his father, Ahaz. Remember, he bought Assyria to take care of his enemies, and so they've been paying tribute. He stopped. And then it even throws in, he defeated the Philistines. The Philistines, we haven't heard of the Philistines in a while. That's so David-like. <laughs> That's what David was like. He defeated Philistines. Well, so did Ahaz. So the author is trying to show that this is a David-like king. The first one. We haven't had one like this, well, since David. <laughs> he trusted. I said that's a premier virtue. It, just mark that word. Highlight that word because that's the key word of the chapter. That little word, trust, is going to be used nine times in chapter 18. He trusted. Does he trust Yahweh? When things look hopeless and very bleak, and they're going to get hopeless and very bleak in just a moment, whom does he trust? That's the question. And it really becomes a question for us. Whom do we trust? So we're going to see that. In the rest of the chapter. But before we get there, let me pause. As always, remind us of the big story. Remember, we're reading Kings in light of the whole Bible and the storyline of the Bible. It's how you must read the Bible and the Old Testament. And so when we read of these David-like kings, and here we finally have a good example, where does it point us in the story? Well, it's always pointing us ahead to the final Davidic king. So the, the storyline is this. Good news. A king greater than David has come. Hezekiah is great. But it's not the end. <laughs> There's coming a greater king than Hezekiah. A greater king than David. I said that's, that's the main message of the book of Kings. We are anticipating. We're longing for a better king. But we have a little glimpse like we did under Solomon for a little bit, a little glimpse of what it is to live under a righteous king. 
a king who's wholly committed to the Lord, a king who restores the worship of Yahweh. We've been longing for this in the book of Kings, so we, we get a glimpse. But remember, these glimpses point us forward to that greater king who will be completely uncompromised in his devotion to his father, who will be the son par excellence, more than any son that are the Davidic kings, who will exactly represent his father and who rules with justice and righteousness and who restores the true worship of Yahweh. That's the king that has come, King Jesus. So let these texts remind you, point you to King Jesus. I was, I was reading this week, part of my Bible reading these past couple weeks have been in the book of Ezekiel, that prophet there. And Ezekiel, towards the end, as he's looking forward to that final kingdom, I was struck again with these words, how he put it. This is the Lord speaking. He says of this, after Israel's failure and the failure of their shepherds, God's looking forward to the time of restoration. You know what he says? He says, this is Ezekiel 34, verse 23. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. David? Well, yeah, David's greater son. That's Yeshua. That's Jesus Who's coming? So these texts are always pointing us to King Jesus. So let me close that. I just always want to say that as we're in this. Now let's read the rest of this chapter here, this long chapter. I won't put this on the screen, but I want to read it under this heading, Whom Do You Trust? That's the key word. We'll look for it in the text as we read. So you can follow along. If you have a Bible, you can just listen to the story. I'll, I'll pause at certain points, make a few comments just for clarification as the story continues. Verse 9. Now it came about in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they captured it in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel, Samaria, was captured. Then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in Halath and on the Habor, the river of Gozin, and in the city of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded, they would neither listen nor do it. So just stop. This is a reprise of chapter 17. One paragraph. We saw this last week. Shalmaneser, the new king, Assyria comes, captures Israel takes them captive. Now you say, why does he repeat that? We just had a whole chapter of that. A couple things. It happens during Hezekiah's reign down in the south. He sees, he's a witness to this. It happens after a few years after he's on the throne. So he, how sobering to see the nation of Israel exiled. But it's also a reminder, don't forget about Assyria. The superpower. Remember what they did? To Samaria, they're still out there. <laughs> they're still lurking. And remember what Hezekiah did? He didn't pay him tribute anymore. He threw off their reign. That's ominous. They don't let that kind of thing go. So remember what they did. Now here it comes. So just keep reading. So we fast forward a few years. It says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, so it's a new king of Assyria, 
Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, of Judah now, and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of Yahweh and the treasuries of the king's house. And at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of Yahweh from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Stop there. We knew it was coming. Here it is. Assyria is at your doorstep. You don't throw off paying tribute. to. Yes, they've been preoccupied. We know that from their own history. They've been preoccupied over in Babylon. They've been, but now they're back at your doorstep. What will you do? Remember that question? Who do you trust? What does Hezekiah do? He tries to pay him off. Hezekiah's response here is viewed negatively. The author doesn't comment on it specifically, but we know from reading the book of Kings that anytime you empty the treasuries of Yahweh and start stripping off gold from the doors and giving it to pay off the foreign king, that's not good. That is, it's a lack of trust in Yahweh to deliver. God had promised them, trust me and I will deliver you from your enemies. They had that very specific promise. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 17, right at the end, verse 39, as he's reciting the commands given to Moses, he says, but Yahweh, your God, you shall fear and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. And here's Hezekiah capitulating and our heart sinks, doesn't it? But wait a minute. This is the David like, finally, we have a king without compromise. And now, and once again, our heart sinks here. He pays him off, but the story's not over, and the story of Hezekiah is not over. In fact, the author will give three chapters on Hezekiah. That's quite a bit. We're only going to see one this morning. It's not over because Sennacherib is not appeased. (laughs) He bought him off. He demanded that, but his desire is to conquer Jerusalem and put a new king on the throne. That's what he's done to several cities already, and that's what he wants. So the story continues. So to hold out judgment on Hezekiah for a moment, okay, till next week. Hold hold out. Here it comes, verse 17, because things get really bleak. Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan, Rabsaras, and Rabshakeh. Now, just side note. Those names, they're probably titles. So your version might have some kind of title like chief commander or something. Those are probably titles, the Tartan being the next in command after Sennacherib. The Rab Saras is the chief eunuch. And the Rabshakeh is probably the chief cupbearer who's really good at talking. (laughs) That's what we're going to see here. So these are probably titles, so we could probably put the word the in front of them. I'll try to do that. So they're probably not names. But he sends the three from Lachish, remember that's 40 miles outside of Jerusalem, that's the fortified city, we'll get to that some more next week, he sent them to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. And when they called to the king, 
Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to meet them. So Hezekiah doesn't. He sends three of his guys out. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Now listen for the word trust. I'll try to translate a little more literally here so you hear it. What is this trust that you have trusted? You say, but they're only empty words, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you trust that you have rebelled against me? Remember, you stopped paying tribute. Now behold, you trust in the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses. If you're able on your part to set riders on them, this is smack talk from... Uh, this guy right just mocking him how then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and trust in egypt for chariots and for horsemen i have come have i not come without the lord's approval against this place to destroy it yahweh said to me go up against this land and destroy it then eliakim the son of hilkiah and shebna and joah said to the rabshakeh speak now to your servants in aramaic now aramaic was the Diplomatic language of the day. It's what you did diplomacy in. So they're asking, follow diplomatic protocol. Speak to us in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak with us in Judean, that is in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the Rapshika said, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Then the rapture stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, in Hebrew, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Come out to me and eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the water of his own cisterns until I come and take you away to a land of your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvarim, Hena, Iva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word, for the king commanded, commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah <coughs> with their closed horn, and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Now, we're going to stop there. Unfortunately, <laughs> the story doesn't stop there. It's kind of a cliffhanger. So you come back next week. 
and uh, hear this conclusion. Really, we should read the whole thing together. I feel bad stopping there, but time will not allow us to read 74 verses and look at all this. So the reason I say that is because the, conclu- the main point of this whole story is in the conclusion. We, we have to get there. That's where the main point is in that. So we've got to save that for next week. So we're going to save the main point, why the story is here until next week. But I think the author here intentionally draws out the first half in some detail, especially these speeches of this Rabshaka. So I think we're meant to at least learn from it. So we'll save the main thing for next Sunday. So come next Sunday and we'll see the exciting conclusion to this story in Kings. But for this morning, let me just draw out these two things. Let me just draw two things this morning under this heading, whom, whom do you trust? Remember I said that's, that's the key word here, whom do you trust? Here's first, the test of trust. The test of trust. We ask the question maybe, why does this happen to Hezekiah? He's a good king. He's a faithful king. He's reformed their worship. He's taken down the high places. So normally, remember normally in the book of Kings, when a foreign power is raised up and starts harassing Israel or Judah, it's the Lord doing it as a sign of his discipline. But not here. Not here. So why is the king of Assyria on the doorstep of Jerusalem under this good, faithful, David-like king, Hezekiah. Why? Again, it's, a, it's really a piece. This is an example of that bigger question that's often asked. You know, why, why do hard things, difficult things, suffering, even evil, why does that happen to God's people? Well, here's an example. And I think this word trust is key in the chapter, what he wants us to see, what I call the test of trust. Why is it? Well, let me offer this, both for Hezekiah, but also for God's people. God appoints difficulties, indeed trials, suffering, hardships, even, even evil things, because make no mistake, Sennacherib is evil. We'll see a little next week what they do to people who they conquer. Even this evil king to test the genuineness of our trust in him. He does. All through scripture. God's MO. He tests. You know the words now from New Testament. James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that. You know the next phrase? The testing of your faith. Produces endurance. Peter, speaking of our great salvation, says, In this you greatly rejoice, First Peter 1, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. Paul wouldn't. He's writing to the Corinthians. He says, we don't want you to be unaware, 
brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Why? So that we might not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. All through Scripture, that's the testimony. God appoints to test the genuineness of our trust in Him, part of His refinement of us. Now, we saw that Hezekiah falters at first. His immediate response, just like ours, <laughs> is to trust in his own resources. Trust in what's tangible. Trust in what he can see. I said these kings have a very specific promise. That God will deliver them from their enemies. Now we don't have that kind of specificity of promise to us. Whether it's an illness or bad situation of all that God is doing. So we don't have the same kind of warrant here. But he did. And instead, he tried to pay him off. But it's just that lesson, right? As God brings difficulty, the temptation to trust in our resources, ourselves. Now, as I said, we don't have the same type of promise, so we should avail ourselves of those gifts that God has given. Go to the doctor. Have the surgery. Get the test. But, always examine, where is my ultimate trust? Have those things become a substitute for my faith? Or an expression of it? And that's not always easy to discern, but it's part of God's good refinement of us. Am I, is, is my trust really in the odds of survival or in the Lord, the author of life and death? So he uses those to test us, the genuineness. As I said, Hezekiah falters and don't we falter. <laughs> but it's not the last word on Hezekiah. I said just... Just hang on to him till next week. You say, why? Why does God do this? So I'll just add this. God's tests are an act of love for our good and his even greater purposes. His aim is not ultimately our grief or pain. I sang that song this morning. Oh, joy that seekest me through pain. I dare not close my heart to thee. Those are good words. His aim is not ultimately our grief or our pain, but ultimately our hope and lasting joy. Right? That same text from James goes on, let endurance have its result, its result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. It is good of God, gracious of God to, to wean us from lesser trust that our joy, our hope might be in Him because that's our satisfaction. We said it last week when we thought about God's demand for exclusive worship. That that's actually for our good, not to our detriment. We're made for that. We're made for Him. So all the more that He can wean us from those broken cisterns that hold no water. To find our spring in Him, our joy in Him is good. Even though painful. 
He is our supreme good, and it is good of Him to test, produce endurance in us. The writer of Hebrews describes it like the discipline of a father. Not the judgment of a judge, but the discipline of a father who loves his children. Loves his children. And that's our father. Hmm. We said many times all throughout this COVID season, there's a hardship. Affected people very differently, I know. But yet, this hardship at different levels that affected both believer and unbeliever alike, right? We said we, we're praying that this one of the purposes, good purposes of God in that is to expose our false trust. What is our trust ultimately in? Now, we saw Hezekiah's attempt at appeasement doesn't work. Doesn't work. Again, we might ask, what's God doing here? It doesn't send him away. I think God is testing certainly Hezekiah and he's going to, he has greater purposes. We've got to save those for next week. It's not just about Hezekiah. It is, but it's greater. We'll, we'll see more of that. So I said that comes in the conclusion. I think the main point of this story. But God actually brings him to the very brink of disaster. I mean, it's a really pitiful scene at the end when they just have their clothes torn and they're coming and saying, this is what he said. And you know what? His arguments are pretty good. Feels hopeless. If he brings him to that point because he's not done. He's not done. So take courage. The words of that hymn, you fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Good words from William Cooper. God moves in a mysterious way. Here's the second takeaway. I need to be really fast with this. The undermining of trust. The undermining. So we have the test of trust and the undermining of trust. Because I, I just sat and thought, why does, why does He record these speeches? Why is it so long? Why does he take all this space in the Bible to record? And we're not done with this, Rob Shekha. We'll see more in chapter 19 to record in detail his speeches. What's the point of these speeches? Well, we know the speeches are aimed at undermining trust. Judah's trust first in Hezekiah. Right? Don't listen to Hezekiah. But ultimately in Yahweh. Hezekiah's God. That's the point of the speeches is to undermine trust in Yahweh, to undermine trust in God's king. And this Rabshakeh is an expert. This is a skilled rhetorician. <laughs> I think that's why he's here. He might be the cupbearer, but he knows Hebrew. He's going to speak to them in their mother language, their heart language. Remember, they're saying, why don't you use Aramaic? No, I... I want them to hear this message. And it's really a masterful speech. He uses persuasive argument to undermine their trust. He's skilled at this. He's rehearsed this. He's done his recon on Israel. He, he knows, or Judah, he, he knows what to say. He is skilled. I mean, we're, we're in this, uh, unfortunately, the political cycle once again. With all the ads, you know, um, 
that come at us, and we're probably tired of all those. But that's part, you know, the, the, all these arguments against don't vote for this person, vote for me. But this is just a piece of that. Vote for Sennacherib. All right? Not Hezekiah. Vote for Sennacherib. Here's why. And, oh, by the way, I have an army of a few hundred thousand people sitting right outside your gate. So that might persuade you a little bit. It's more like the, the elections in Ukraine, maybe. Yeah, the, uh. So... Here he goes. He's a master of this. But the Rabshakeh, this is what I want you to get. He represents God's enemy seeking to undermine faith, seeking to undermine our trust. This is all through history. He's just one more example. I think that's why he gives us this kind of detail. He's the voice of unbelief. Plausible arguments. And don't mistake it. His arguments are theological in nature. Trying to get them trying to undermine their trust. Here's, here's three arguments to undermine their trust. Let me just give them to you. I, I don't have time to uh, develop them, but I'll just give them to you. You can think them through maybe modern examples because I think these are very contemporary. So maybe in your small group or with others, maybe think through how, how would these apply today? What, what voice am I listening to? One, God is unable or unwilling to deliver. Trust in what you can see and measure. God's unable. Again, he makes theological arguments. God's actually judging you. You took down his worship places. He's trying to make a divide. I'm sure there's people in Judah not too happy with what Hezekiah did. He's trying to divide them. Yahweh sent us. He's not here to deliver you. He's here to judge you. That's why you're experiencing what you're experiencing. And by the way, he's inept anyway. Yahweh is no match for the king of Assyria. He's unwilling or he's unable to deliver you. So just trust in what you see. I've got an army of a few hundred thousand outside your gates. What are you going to believe in? What are you going to believe in? Put your trust there. Second, trust in an alternative savior and an alternative paradise here and now. He presents Sennacherib to them as a deliverer. Hezekiah won't deliver you, but Sennacherib will. Just come and make peace. And, and then he paints it in terms of this idyllic land. You'll be under your own vine and fig eating and drinking. And then I'll, I'll just come and take you away. And I'll make you this really nice place over here where, oh, it's a land of bread and wine and olive trees and honey. And you'll live and you won't die. Choose Sennacherib and you won't die. Sound familiar? Oh, always these voices of an alternative savior, of paradise here and now, of the good here and now, the promise of life. This is, this is always sin's enticement, right? We're back to the garden and Satan saying, did God really say that? You won't die. It's so much better if you just go this route. You'll be like God. Sin's offer, isn't it? It's just God's a killjoy. Trust his word. Look at the fruit you can have. Just go this route. So lots of application. Maybe one application. Think politics. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to leave that because I don't have time. Third, all religions are the same. Man-made gods inept for real life. <laughs> All religions are... He's, this guy's a study in comparative religions. 
right? He just starts naming other gods and saying, why don't you just look historically and see which god was able to stop Assyria? None of them. We burned all their gods in the fire. Do you really think Yahweh is going to deliver? All religions are the same. They're just man-made gods to cope with life, to give people meaning. All right, that's the rhetoric of the critic. They're all the same. They're just man-made. But when it comes to real life, when an army's at your door, (laughs) cast them aside. They don't work. Now, here's one of the fatal flaws of this man. He assumes Yahweh is another local, generic deity over this little kingdom. And he is greatly mistaken. This kind of language, God will not leave unanswered. That's next chapter. That's next chapter. They're not all the same. God is in a class by himself. All other gods are false. God is self-existent, incomparable. So we'll, we'll come to that. I just leave you this morning. You can, as I said, I'm sorry, we, you just have to wrestle through some of those applications, uh, maybe on your own or with your small group here. But I, I want to leave you and just read Psalm 2 this morning, because this is where my mind goes. The second Psalm, Sennacherib, is just one example of what happens throughout history of the voices raised up against God, seeking to undermine faith. They're all around us, all around us. What are you going to tune into? You need to be in this book, hearing his promises and who God is and feeding your mind with it because you're getting a lot of other messages that are anti-Christ, anti-God. But Psalm 2 gives us this portrait of this is what happens throughout history and it's tied right to the kings, the Davidic kings and ultimately to King Jesus. Here it is. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, like Sennacherib, take their stand against, and the rulers take counsel together against who? Against Yahweh and against his anointed. That's the Davidic king. Against his Messiah, against Hezekiah and the Davidic kings. This is what the kings of the earth do. They take their stand against God and his people and his Messiah. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Here is the Lord's response. Just settle this in your heart. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Are you kidding, Sennacherib? Are you kidding? The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Yes, Hezekiah, but oh, ultimately, King Jesus. And then the king speaks, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, O Sennacherib and others, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship, that is, kiss. Worship the Lord with reverence. Serve him. Rejoice with trembling, do hom- kiss the son, do homage to the son, the king, 
lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's our refuge. Is that your refuge? Against all the voices trying to undermine faith, take your refuge in the Son. Amen. Let, let me pray for us then we'll finish. Oh, Father, thank you for these reminders from your word. We, we confess, Lord, we falter. We're drawn to the here and now, to trust in ourself and our resources. Oh, may we cling to you and your promises through difficulty, through challenges, through sorrow, through suffering, through loss. Refine us that our joy might be in you and we might take refuge in the Son. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.